Well then, let's uh, turn with the help of God to the last passage that we read <coughs> in the Gospel according to Mark and chapter 12. And the exchange between Christ and this uh, scribe, which begins, of course, with the scribe's question at the end of verse 28. And that question is, which is the first commandment of all? And it's an exchange that answers with Christ's words at the end of verse 34, where he says to the scribe that he is not far from the kingdom <coughs> of God. So which is the first commandment of all? Now Mark tells us that this question uh, came to Christ from a scribe. Uh, Matthew calls him an expert in the law and Matthew also calls him a Pharisee. Uh, that tells us that this man is a, an expert in the word of God. As a scribe, he writes it professionally for people, and he is a teacher of it. So he knows the law, at least in one way or another, very well. And as we'll see in a minute, he, he doesn't just know it in terms of the letter of it. He seems to have made some headway in understanding what God's law is really about as well, which is, of course, very important. But this man has become very impressed with the way in which Christ has uh, dealt with his own enemies. And particularly in the last exchange which Christ had, which was with a group of Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were a, a different kind of religious party to the Pharisees, um, but one of their teachings was that they did not believe in a resurrection at all. And uh, the question that they asked Christ was designed to expose the foolishness of the doctrine of the resurrection, the idea that a body could rise again after death. But the Lord answered the Sadducees um, with what this scribe thought was great cleverness and skill and knowledge of the scriptures. The Lord took a, a passage in the Old Testament that you wouldn't expect to prove the resurrection and he proved the resurrection from it. And he silenced the Sadducees. And uh, even we're told elsewhere in the Bible that the rest of the Pharisees were impressed with that and said that he had answered well. Of course the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's very often the case. But with this scribe it was different. He, he knew that the Lord had just not demonstrated a, a knowledge of scripture but a real understanding of the word of God and you get the impression in this man said that there is a genuine question is this really the Messiah that the Lord sent so he decided to come forward and to test him himself with a question and uh, it is a test. It's, it's not a temptation. I know that the word temptation is used in the old King James Version, but in those days temptation and testing meant essentially the same thing. But you should divest yourself of the idea that this man is trying to trip Christ up. He's not doing that at all. 
He has a, a genuine question. And um, if, if you have a deep and profound question, you, you want someone who is deep and profound to answer it. And his question is one that he now wants to address to the Lord. I'm sure he's discussed it with others often enough, but he, he's being led to Christ as someone who may indeed be able to answer this question. So he comes forward and says to him, which is the first commandment of all? Or as Matthew says, which is the greatest commandment of all? If you want to quibble about which word the scribe used, my answer to these things is always the same. He probably used both. He probably asked a longer form of the question than we have in either of the two Gospels. He possibly said something like, which is the greatest of all the commandments? Which is the first? Which is the heaviest of all the commandments? But, but first and greatest mean essentially the same thing anyway. When he's asking which is the first commandment, he's not, of course, referring to first in point of time. He's referring to first in point of importance. This word, in fact, is sometimes translated chief in the Bible. Which is the greatest of all the commandments? That's his question. Now, of course, um, that is a, a reasonable question to ask. And uh, he asks it in a very reasonable and respectful way. It's a reasonable question to ask because the fact is that some commandments are actually weightier than others. And even if all are important, it's still nevertheless true that some are more important than others. Uh, nobody, even almost from a common sense point of view, nobody would say that a command like you must not boil a kid, a goat kid, in the milk of its own mother is of equal importance with thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we all know almost instinctively that not all commands are of equal importance. Some are more weighty than others. In fact, Christ himself uses that very language. Weightiness or gravity in terms of commandments. He said to the, to the Pharisees, for example, you tithe, mint and cumin, herbs, you tithe these herbs, he says, but you omit the weightier matters of the law, mercy and truth, justice, these kinds of things. Now you notice that he called them the weightier matters of God's law. So some parts of God's law are obviously weightier than others. That, of course, is the reason why some sins are weightier than others. Our catechism tells us that some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That is because some commandments are heavier in the sight of God than others. The heavier the commandment, the heavier or the more heinous the sin when you break that commandment. And that, of course, is related to the fact that the punishment for sins varies. Our Lord said that if we are ignorant of certain things, that our punishment will be with lesser stripes. But if we have knowledge of things and still disobey them, then our punishment will be with many stripes. So 
how the judgment of God falls heavier upon us according to the seriousness of the commandments that we break. So these things are obviously related together. A weighty commandment, the breach of which leads to a weighty sin, the commission of which leads to a weighty punishment. And of course, as I mentioned last week, when we are children of light and privilege, we need to take these things to heart. Uh, we sin against great light and we sin against uh, great privilege. So yes, some commandments are more important than others. But in connection with that, let me just say a few things because I think I, I can't say that without balancing it out a little bit. First of all, let me emphasise this, that you and I both need to make sure that it is God's um, assessment of the weightiness of a commandment that we follow and not our own. If we were going to assess which commandments are weightier, we would follow our own inclination. We would doubtless say that the commandments we find easier to keep are the very important ones. And the ones we find difficult to keep are the ones that are perhaps not so important. It's God's assessment of these that we keep. For example, the ceremonial law gives way to necessity of life. The various regulations governing the Sabbath give way when a person's life is in danger or when an animal's life is in danger. That is just an example uh, of how God considers one thing weightier than another. The second thing I want to say is that no commandment is light. No commandment is weightless. <coughs> Even when the Lord said to the Pharisees that you tithe, but you omit justice, mercy, and faith, he also said then, these you should have done and not leave the others undone. In other words, we've got to remember that we need to respect the whole of God's law because that's bound up with respecting God himself as the lawgiver. I think I gave you a, an illustration of this not that long ago, but um, if, if I was to think of my own relationship to my own father, now I, I use this very illustration, I'm sure of it. If he said to me on the Sabbath morning, now go to church. If he said to me on the previous Saturday evening, uh, go out and take in a bucket of coal. I've no doubt which is the most important of these two commandments. But if he said to me, go out and take in a bucket of coal, and I said to him, how important is that commandment? There's a problem there, is there not? And my father would make me aware that there was a problem with that. Because fundamental to obedience is your relationship to the lawgiver. If you sit back and say, oh, well, I'll do the important things, but I'm not concerned about the lighter things, that means there's a problem between you and the lawgiver, is there not? So we have to recognize that no command is weightless because God himself is not weightless. And again, we need to remember that although punishment may differ, punishment is punishment still. I have no doubt at all from the scripture that there, may, and that there are degrees of uh, grief and suffering in a lost eternity. But there is no pleasantness and peace in hell. And we need to remember that. Um, as the command, Catechism again reminds us that 
Although some sins are more heinous than others, yet every sin is deserving of the wrath and curse of God. So, therefore, we've got to beware of saying, well, just because that is heavier than that doesn't mean that that is okay. So these caveats are there. But nonetheless, some are obviously heavier than others. Now, it's not just a reasonable question this man has, but it's important to notice that he does ask, ask it in a reasonable spirit. I mean, I made reference to the fact that uh, Matthew says, or at least in the King James, it's recorded as tempting him. Here, it is said that he is testing him, and I think that is better, because the man's motive is not bad. He's not trying to trip him up. In fact, his motive is good. This question, which commandment is the most important, wasn't a brand new question. The Pharisees used to discuss this kind of question all the time. They had various ideas as to which were the most important of the 613 commands that they found in the Word of God. Now, it's an interesting thing, but as far as I can understand it, no one has been able to identify 613. But apparently, um, the, the Ten Commandments, as they were given, had 613 letters in them. So they said, by their way of thinking about there must be 613 commandments in the Word of God. Well, that's a peculiar way of approaching the matter. Let's just leave it at that. But they used to discuss all the time which was the most important and which was the most light. Now, this man isn't satisfied with it. Just that you're never, if you're a spiritual soul, if you're seeking the Lord, if you're seeking the deep things in life, things connected with eternity, you're not satisfied with the discussions of religious people. You can find that they, that they go nowhere and they, they don't really get to, to your innermost being. They, they don't answer your deepest questions at all. This man, praise God for it, is increasingly dissatisfied with the discussion, so he's not really ashamed to put this most important question to Christ. I'm sure there are people who, who were saying to him, people of his own stripe and people of his own party, be saying, what are you asking that kind of question for? Ask him something to do with Caesar or something to do with the relationship of, between Rome and the Jews so that we can impale the man on the horns of a dilemma and we can find some way of putting him to death. Don't come to him with an important question of that kind that's only fit for ourselves. But when your soul is bothering you, you, you need an answer to the deepest question and you'll come to the person that you think can give it to you. And you'll notice that Christ deals with this person in a very open and straightforward way. Uh, Christ doesn't always deal with people in what we might call a straightforward way. He always deals with them in an honest way, but sometimes he's quite evasive in terms of the question they ask. And that's because of the reason they're putting the question in the first place. Psalm 18 tells us that with the pure, the Lord will show himself pure. But with the devious, he will show himself shrewd. Um, in fact, there's a whole list of these things. Wait, wait a second, I'll just uh, quote it. As it is, in, in, in Psalm 18, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. That's a wonderful thing. Show mercy, you'll discover God's mercy. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, 
in heart, obviously, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself, not devious, but shrewd. God has a way of dealing shrewdly with those who are devious with himself. That's why Christ very often does not give the kind of answer you'd expect to people who are trying to trip him up. The key, by the way, to getting God's answer um, to your own questions is to deal respectfully with the Lord. If you're dealing with him from the point of view of someone who's greater than himself, if you're saying to God, well, you show yourself to me and I'll obey you, you prove to me that you'll exist and I will yield you my obedience, God doesn't deal with that kind of thing. You must become like a little child, not just to enter the kingdom of heaven, but to learn about the kingdom of heaven at all. We need to bow before the greatness and majesty of God and ask our questions. To that kind of heart, the Lord will make a revelation. Well, our fundamental need, friends, before God is to be humbled. That's our fundamental need before God. It's to be humbled. Except we become as little children, we learn nothing. And one of the reasons maybe the Lord hasn't revealed himself to you or shown you plainly the, the, the way of the cross or whatever is because you're not coming down. You're not coming down before God and acknowledging that he is the Lord and the teacher and the master. And you are the one who are in iniquity, in the bonds of it, and doomed to eternal judgment. Bow like that and you'll get an answer. Here you'll notice that the man is respectful. After all, when Christ answers his question, he says, Master, you have said well. You'll notice too that the Lord says to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. He had a good spirit. He asks a good question, and he asks it in a good way. At the same time, we need to go a bit deeper it's one thing to ask a good question. It's another thing to ask a good question in a good spirit. It's another thing to go deeper still and to say, but, but what's your exact motive for asking that particular question? Why is it that you want to know? You even, or me, why would we want to know which is the greatest of all of God's commandments? Why? Well, I suppose one reason that we might ask that question is because we have come to feel that we're simply not keeping the law of God properly at all. Now, I suppose over the next few weeks, as God enables us, uh, we will be looking closely at the law of God. And if, if, well, I was going to say if the Spirit of God shows you, but even if your conscience is awake, you, you will begin to feel that you're not really keeping this law yourself. You might like to think you are. There, are. there are people who obviously call themselves good. They call other people good. When, when no one is good. No one keeps the law of God properly. But once you begin to feel a sense of failure in connection with sin, you might then start saying, well, which is the greatest, the most important of God's commandments? When I'm saying that you begin to feel your sin, the catechism there reminds us that no mere man since the fall. I think the use of the word mere there is a reminder that there was a man since the fall who kept God's commandments perfectly. One man. 
but no mere man, the God man, yes, but no mere man since the fall is able to keep all the commandments of God perfectly, but doth daily transgress them in thought and word and deed. It's good to know that. It's good to feel it too. And you come to know as well and to understand that every sin is indeed deserving of the wrath of God. It's good to know that and to feel that too. There's no such thing, like I said, as a small sin. But this is where the danger can, can come in because you can begin to think like this. Well, is there one commandment that I can keep which will somehow atone for the rest? If I keep the most important of all God's commands, will, will that put a kind of covering on the rest for me in such a way that God will accept me and be pleased with me. And I suppose lurking underneath that question is a more sinister one, which goes something like this. Is there one single command that I can keep so that I can more or less forget the rest? And of course that's very subtle. I do this, therefore, it doesn't really matter if I don't do that. Now, you come across that kind of thinking in the church and out of it. In the church, I, I knew a man once who kept the Sabbath externally very, very well. I emphasize externally. You would never see him break it in any way at all, and he was just as rigid in terms of enforcing it on his family. And of course, as part of keeping that Sabbath, he went to church. Both times a day. He would take a, a psalm like we sang there to heart and say that the morning light was an appropriate time to praise him in public worship and so was the evening. The morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. But you got the feeling, more than a feeling about this man, that that was the sum total of his religion. Uh, there was nothing else in his life that would indicate that he actually knew the Lord, loved the Lord, or served the Lord. In fact, there were things that indicated otherwise. But boy, you couldn't fault his Sabbath keeping or his church attendance. So it's, it's quite easy to wonder, did he think, and I don't know this, but did he think that that was a kind of atonement? The fact that he was so diligent so regular, so meticulous in sabbatic observance that it somehow made up for everything else that was not right in his life. What a danger that is. The same thing, of course, is true of people outside the church. The world thinks like this all the time. I was reading the biography of a man not that long ago who was a compulsive liar and a serial adulterer. But it's amazing that his biographer said that although that was so, this man was so generous that he would give you his shirt off his back. And the impression that the biographer was giving was that these other things were just, oh, well, neither here nor there, really. He was a compulsive liar, yes, and he was a serial adulterer. But he was so generous and kind, this man. You got the impression, you see, that that sanctified as though being kind is what God asks for. If you're kind, you're good. 
If you're kind, you'll go to heaven. Well, I'm quite sure that you won't get to heaven if you're not kind. But I'm also sure that being kind won't get you to heaven. You often hear that when people say, well, this person was extraordinarily devoted to his family. That's sometimes said at, um, at funerals, that a person was very, very devoted to his family. Well, that's not an unusual thing. It's certainly a good thing. But certainly in itself, it, it doesn't get you to heaven either, does it? There have been tyrants and dictators who were extremely devoted to their own family but not so devoted to the millions that they killed. In this day and age, of course, tolerance is the all-atoning virtue, or inclusivity. If you are a tolerant and inclusive person, well, that's all you need to know about a person. They are the people who go to heaven, and they will immediately pounce on you as a Christian, an evangelical Christian particularly, a reformed Christian will pounce on you and say, you're not a tolerant person. You're a bigot. You are definitely not a Christian. We, on the other hand, tolerate everybody. There was an extraordinary Christian service held yesterday. Quite extraordinary. Um, if it wasn't for the readings that came from the, from the Word of God, you wouldn't have a clue where you were or what was going on. Not a clue. You would think that everything was okay. And it's strange how people um, get some kind of high, religious high, by uttering certain phrases and by walking in certain ways and doing certain processions and lighting certain candles and all this stuff. And it all looks so, so grand. And there's not a thing in it. I mean, there was a sermon preached there. Would you call it a sermon? I certainly would not. I have no idea what it was. A little piosity that took two or three minutes that had nothing to say to anybody. But that was supposed to be a religious service in connection with the coronation of a king who was supposed to be the defender of the faith in the land. Dear me, an assortment of Hindus, Muslims, and every kind of mishmash under the sun. And you wonder how a nation like Israel slid to the point where half the priesthood were those who were Jehovah priests and half were Baal priests. You sit and you wonder, well, how could, how could a nation descend to that? Well, look at, what we, look at where we are ourselves and you have your answer to that. You have your answer. It's not that difficult to slide into these things. But you see, they can present themselves as tolerant, inclusive, and it's an all-atoning virtue. Everything else must be fine. The Pharisees, interestingly, had their own answers to this question. Some would say that the Sabbath was the most important of all the commands. Others used to go to ridiculous lengths to... Well, there was one opinion amongst the Pharisees that the fringe on your garment was the most important. The Jews were required to wear a fringe on their garment that marked them out as, as uh, Jewish people. And there was one Pharisee opinion that he who observes the fringe on his garment is as though he kept the whole law. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. You may think, well, it's quite stupid. It's no more stupid than the person who thinks he attends church every Christmas and attends a nativity play thinks he's a Christian. There's lots of them. 
that different people do different stupid things at different times. Now what does the Lord say? How does he answer the question? Well he gives him two commandments. One comes from Deuteronomy 6 and the other comes from the book of Leviticus and he ties them together. He gives two commandments. The most important and the next one after. And you'll notice that they're both to do with love. They're both to do with love. The first is to do with loving God. He says the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, really these words are heaped together because it's just a a very graphic and powerful way of saying with all that you are, with all your being. You must love God with your intellect. You You must love him with your volitional powers, the powers of your will. You must love him with your emotional life, with your heart. The whole of your being must love the Lord. Your God. That is the first, that is the greatest commandment of all. And the second, he says, is like it. Now it is second. You'll notice that even in these two great commands, the Lord distinguishes them, he differentiates them. The first carries the more gravitas, but the next, he says, is like it. It's connected with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You must care for your neighbor as you would care for yourself. You must love your neighbour as you would want your neighbour to love you. As Paul says, no man hates his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. So he should love his wife as his own body, his own flesh. Everybody loves themselves in a right, biblical and proper way. In other words, you take care of yourself, you respect yourself, you look after the health of your body, you look after the health of your soul. Well, he says, you look after your neighbour in exactly the same way as though his body was yours and as though his soul was yours. It's interesting how the, the fellow who asked the question of him a little earlier tried to evade the, the responsibility of that when Christ told him to love his neighbour. He said, and who is my neighbour, And uh, the scripture tells us that when he asked that question, who is my neighbour, he was trying to justify himself. In other words, he was obviously showing some kind of uh, hostility towards people and he was wanting to justify himself for that hostility on the basis that (laughs) that person or these persons didn't qualify for his help and his assistance. In other words, okay, I accept what you're saying. I need to love my neighbour, but who is my neighbour? Christ showed him that the Samaritan was a neighbour to the Jew. When Christ, interestingly, when Christ said, um, who was neighbour to him who fell among the thieves in the parable, you'll notice that the man didn't even say the Samaritan, probably because he choked on the words. He, He just said, he who had mercy on him. He didn't even want to say the word Samaritan, but the Lord says, you go and do likewise. So love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. Let me say a couple of things 
about that. First, when Christ says that these two commandments are the greatest commandments, he's not actually substituting these for the Ten Commandments. Now, that's really why I'm looking at this passage with you today. Um, He's not saying, well, you can put these Ten Commandments aside because love now is all that matters, loving God and loving your neighbour. What is the relationship between these two commands and the Ten Commandments? Well, first of all, they summarise them. You'll notice that these two commandments summarise the Ten Commandments. And in a way, the Lord Jesus Christ is leading this scribe back to the Ten Commandments. Away from the fringes, away from the sacrifice of the ceremonies, the clothes, all that. He's leading them to the foundation of our relationship between him and God. After all, I quoted to you last time what, um, what Paul said in his, in his letter to the Romans and in, in chapter 13 where he tells us how to love our neighbour and he says, um, He who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and here he goes into the second table of the law, which have to do with our relationship with each other, with our neighbours, He goes to, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet, are summed up in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Love is the fulfilment of the law. Now there's an idea abroad, and I come across it quite often in churches, that Christ is effectively there saying, Put these commandments to the side. It's now all about love. The foolishness of that way of thinking uh, comes about like this. Let's say, for example, (coughs) that you were to say to me, well, um, I'm actually in in an adulterous relationship with my neighbour's wife, but I still love him. Now, the biblical response to that will be, uh, how do you love him? If that's what you do. In other words, Paul is not saying here that that love is a substitute for the law. He's saying that the law can only be understood in terms of love. And if you really want to love your neighbour, this is how you behave. In other words, you will respect his property. You will respect his wife. You will respect truth. It's not about feeling. Or it's not just about feeling. It's about our walk and our conduct. We love our neighbour. We demonstrate that. But by calling it love, the Lord takes us to the heart of it. In other words, I I can't love God by an external observance of... um, By making sure, in other words, that I'm not idolatrous. Or by making sure I don't use images in worship. Or by refraining from taking God's name in vain externally or by keeping the Sabbath. I I can't keep these things externally unless I love the Lord. In other words, a true keeping of the commandment flows from a relationship. Once you love the Lord, you begin to really keep these things properly. Yes, it's important to keep them externally. But real keeping of them flows from the heart. I'll come to back, back to that just a, a little bit later on. But that's what Jesus meant when he said, 
He, uh, Matthew tells us that when he had finished speaking to this man, he said that these two commandments are the most important, and he said, on these hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, you can take the whole of the Bible and you can slot them underneath these two commandments. There's a sense in which you can take the whole of the Bible and slot them under the ten, but then you can take the ten and slot them under the two. What is true religion all about? It is about loving God and our neighbour as ourselves. That will have an external appearance, but it must have an internal origin. It's all connected with the relationship to God, which must be love. Now, there's a reason he's telling the scribe that. The reason he's telling the scribe that is because that's what he doesn't have. Um, we're told that when the Lord was dealing with the rich young ruler, you remember how Christ brought the disciples before the, the commandments before him too. He brought the commandments before him. And the young man said, I've kept these things, he says, since I was a, a young man. And we're told that the Lord looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, you still lack one thing. You still lack one thing. He went to the tenth commandment. He, he actually left out the tenth when he said... Um, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. The man says, I've kept all these. And the Lord left uh, the last hour till the end. And he said, very well then. He said, what about the ten? Uh, sell everything you've got, he said, and you come and follow me. Um, but he couldn't. He went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And uh, <clears throat> he knew that his relationship to his own wealth and to his own possessions uh, mattered more at that point in time anyway than serving the Lord meant more to him than serving the Lord in any case these two commandments summarize the ten commandments and they also distill them into their essence because their essence is love. Why do you want to keep the law of God? Why do you want to keep the most important of God's laws? Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And you can only keep them if you do love him. Now one of the amazing things about this answer, it's a wonderful answer, of course, and the man recognises it to be like that. The amazing thing about this is that the answer was in front of the man's eyes all along. Now I mean that literally, because this man wore a box on his forehead. It's called a phylactery. Christ refers to the phylacteries that the Pharisees wore, the stricter ones anyway. He refers to them quite often. The phylacteries were little boxes. That the, that the Jews wore tied around their head, wore them on their foreheads when they went out anyway. And these phylacteries, like I said, there were a little box inside where, where little scrolls of paper. And written on the scrolls of paper was a, a famous text amongst the Jewish people, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, listen, listen carefully. In a way, it wasn't just between his eyes, it was between his ears. Hear and listen carefully. The Lord your God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That was written in little scrolls of paper right between their eyes. Now the reason they put it between their eyes was because 
the Lord said in the law that that they should have these as um, that, that 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 they should be written on their doorposts, that they should be on their hands, and it should and it should be uh, on their eyes, on their foreheads, uh, in their heads, in their minds. That, of course, is the implication of this. The Lord is telling them in their going out and coming in to think about this law. And in everything they thought about to bring it to the touchstone of the law of God. But they of course take these things literally. They always seem to um, not be able to see the forest for the trees. They always do. So they, they put a box on their doorpost and they put a box on their forehead. And as I recall they put a box on their hand. But the Lord said the answer is staring you in the face. Just like it's staring ourselves in the face. I mean we may ask profound spiritual questions about God and how we can be saved and so on. And the answer is in front of us. I mean, you handle it all the time. You've got your Bible in front of you. It tells you what you must do to be saved. It tells you to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved yourself. But we act as though we don't know that. We act as though we don't know it. When we do. The man didn't need to ask the question. It was staring him in the face. It was between his eyes. Love the Lord your God. Not simply do what he says, but love him. Recognize his lovableness. And love him as you are called to do. Come back to that in a second. But the answer was just in front of his eyes. Now you'll notice how the man responded. He said to him, Well said, Master. I know that's true. And he says, What's more? He says, I've come to believe that doing what you've said there is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Now what what an insight he had. Especially with all the rubbish that was being spoken around him about fringes and tassels. Although when I'm saying that, I'm not saying that these things were light because God said to them. But in terms of the greatest commandment, well, he had an insight. I know that God wants my heart. Somehow or other, I know that the true, true, I know that the true religion must be my heart. And for the scribe, that was the end of the conversation, you see. It's almost like, I was thinking of it even this morning, as though it, like a question meeting. Some of you will be familiar with the question meeting, which is disappearing, I suppose. But at a question meeting, what usually happened was that uh, somebody would give a text that he wanted an explanation of, and various people would, would speak to the question and, and tell what they thought uh, the, the text meant, at least in connection with personal experience. And a minister was meant to... One of the ministers was meant to close the question by, by summing it up and finishing it. There's a sense in which this, this is almost like a question meeting like that, as though, this, as though the question was being debated. And Christ had just spoken to the question. And this scribe is pronouncing it as a well said, Master. No, no, that is the truth. That is right. As though his opinion um, could be the final word on the matter. But it never is, is it? Christ isn't giving an opinion. Christ's not giving a judgment on this matter as the Pharisees would give him a judgment or as the Sanhedrin might pronounce a judgment or anybody else for that matter. 
He's not going to close the question. The Lord will close the question. He'll close it. After all, the Lord's not on trial. The astonishing thing that is that in these um, passages at the end of Matthew and at the end of Mark, it's as though the Lord's on trial. Sadducees come up with a question. Pharisees, we've got another question. We've got another question. You know what it's like when people are just trying to trip you up and expose you. But the Lord's not on trial. I mean, how can the judge of all the earth be on trial? I mean, the Lord came into this world to try ourselves. He's coming into this world, and of course, true enough, on the one hand, he can say that at this precise moment, he is not judging the world. He is coming to seek and to save that which is lost. But make no mistake, there's an element of judgment even in his ministry. He's just bringing the light of God and the law of God into the world in connection with the gospel, and he's sorting his all out. He's exposing us either to be wheat on the one hand or chaff on the other. He's discovering whether we are children of light or children of darkness. And the only way we can assess our spiritual condition today is by taking ourselves to the touchstone of the word of God. That's what sorts us out. So the Lord effectively says, I'll give the verdict on this. And my verdict is that you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. By the way, here's another important truth. Some commands are heavier than others. Some sins are heavier than others. Some punishments are heavier than others. Some people are nearer the kingdom than others. Uh, you will find some people who say, well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, you're either in or out. Well, that's true. We are either in or out. But that does not negate the fact that right here, just now, as I speak, some of you are nearer the kingdom than others. Now, some of you are in, I hope and believe, by God's grace. Some of you, sadly, may be out. Amongst you who are out, some of you are near, and some of you are not near. Some of you are nearer than you were. Some of you are further away from the kingdom of God than you were. In or out, yes, but near and far. The danger, of course, is that those who are far away may never come near again. The danger, too, is that those who are near may start drifting and go far away. Personally, I know nothing as grievous in my spirit as seeing people who are drifting away from God. Whether they were professing or not, I think it's much worse than they were professing but just to see anyone drifting away from God and from his word is perhaps the most grievous thing I think that I can come across doesn't matter who it is it's the saddest and most grievous thing to see that's why it's important if you're near the kingdom to get in you've got to get in friend you've got to strive to enter in at the straight gate Judas famously kissed Christ on his way to the gate of hell. And it's such a thought to think that you can be so, so near but not go in at all. I suppose it's um, shocking for us in a way to think that a scribe like this who could answer so well is still not inside the kingdom. But believe me, it was a shock to the scribe too. 
I'm quite sure he was like Nicodemus, uh, quite sure that the kingdom belonged to him and that he was inside the kingdom. So the Lord's words are a rebuke and they are an encouragement. They're a rebuke because he's not in. And the Lord in his grace is identifying to him why he's not in, because the relationship is still not right. His understanding has come right to a large extent, but his heart is still not right. Why not? He needs to love God. And how does he do that? Well, it's through the man standing in front of him. It's through the man standing in front of him. How can we love God without loving the Son of God who is in front of us, even in front of us today in the Scriptures? How can we love God without loving the Son? But the Son is the one who's bringing God near to you. The Son appearing in the world and living and dying is God saying, Here is a rope ladder by which you ascend into my presence. Here in his love, not that we love him, but that he first loved us. And to recognize that God is coming down to save us in the person of his Son is the key. Recognition of God and his love to a fallen world. There's a rebuke. He's not in the kingdom. But of course there is an encouragement there. Christ Jesus has come into this world to seek and to save sinners. It's a blessed moment when that recognition begins to dawn in you. That that is an offer to you. An offer to you to experience the love of God by putting your hand in his and you'll experience the fullness of God's love being shed abroad in your own heart. I don't know what became of this man. Nobody does. Just as you have the feeling sometimes that some encounters end badly, you can't help but feel that perhaps this one ended well. And that um, before he left this world, he recognised that the person he was speaking to was indeed the one that he suspected he may be. The cross might have been a stumbling block to that. But with God's help, he would soon see that the cross was the key to it. Remember, friends, in closing, and I can't urge this on you strongly enough, remember in the closing that to be near the kingdom is still to be outside and it's no guarantee that you'll be in unless you get in and call upon the name of the Lord. Remember, too, that to be almost persuaded, like Agrippa was, is to be altogether lost. Don't stop in the plain. Don't rest with knowledge. Rest with nothing except believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, beginning to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, we pray to be able to go to the heart of things and uh, to know that you desire our own hearts above all things. Son, daughter, give me your heart. And we pray that all our own Christian walk and our keeping of your commandments 
would not be done in a spirit of a works religion, but rather out of a grateful obedience to a God who did for us in the person of his Son what we could not do ourselves. Oh, we are thankful today for the one who kept a law perfectly for us and uh, who was obedient even to the point of death, even the cursed death of the cross. Bless to us our meditation upon the truth. May it continue to change our lives like that of the Lord's into whose image we desire to be conformed. In his name and for his sake. Amen. <coughs> uh, let's close by singing in Psalm 51. And at verse 15. Sorry, verse 16, verse 16. Now, uh, this psalm ends in a very interesting way. I mean, David obviously has been brought to a place where he really sees his sin properly and confesses it. And I'm sure he tried uh, to get God's forgiveness in his own way without confession. One of the ways in which he can do so is just through religious performance. And I think the end of the psalm references that. The fact that he tried just by sacrifices and offerings to, to get forgiveness. Well, they alone just won't bring it, will they? Because thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it thee. Nor wilt thou with burnt offering at all delighted be. What use are these things without a heart? What use? Therefore, he says, a broken spirit is to God a pleasing sacrifice. A broken and a contrite heart, Lord, thou wilt not despise. Show kindness, and do good, O Lord, to Zion, thine holy hill. The walls of thy Jerusalem build up of thy good will. Now what David is praying for there is that the realisation that's come to him is one that he prays will come to the whole church of God, so that their religion would not be external alone, but from the heart. Then, he says... Righteous offerings shall thee please, and offerings burnt, which they with whole burnt offerings and with calves shall on thy altar lay. He came to realise that all his religious offerings without a heart meant nothing to God. Let's remember that. It's all to do with loving God. Um, the last four stanzas then, let's stand to sing. For the days
love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.